Let's just read from verse number one. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. And he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And in the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hydekil, then I looked up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Euphas. His body also was like the beryl, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and feet like in colour to be polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone, and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Yet heard I the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. And behold, an hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. For the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But though Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people, in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. And when he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground, and I became dumb. And behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spake, and said unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision and my sorrows are turned upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? For as for me, straightway there remained there remained no strength in me, neither is there breath left in me. Then there came again and touched me like one touched me one like the appearance of a man. And he strengthened me and said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not, peace be unto thee, be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. Then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Greece shall come. I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. And there is none that holdeth with thee in these things, but Michael, your prince. Now that's the reading this evening. And I see others have come in. Nice to see you. You're very welcome. Thanks for coming. So we're in Daniel chapter 10. And let me give you a quotation from the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, who died in 1920. Uh, he was a Christian, and this is what he said. 
If once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem, by comparison, a mere game. Not here, but up there. That is where the real conflict is waged. Our earthly struggle drones in its backlash. And as a Christian, he understood what Daniel was getting a glimpse of here in this prophecy. So in chapter 10, having come through the 70-week prophecy of chapter 9, in chapter 10, what we are or what is beginning to be revealed to us here is what can't be seen by us, what is never seen by us, but what is as real as everything that is seen. Because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not real. And as we have it revealed here, it's as if that spiritual curtain is pulled back so that we can see the unseen. We can appreciate what is ongoing but not visible to us. It's a glimpse of the spiritual warfare that goes on all the time and still goes on today. And although it rages unseen to the physical eye, Daniel was given this glimpse and this vision, and that is also consistent with other aspects or visions that we have in Scripture. So let's dive into this and see what we can learn as we go through this chapter. So we can begin at the beginning in verse 1, and the context of it historically is given when it took place, and there's a kind of summary of it, uh, the whole thing, in verse number 1. Um, if you go to any kind of a legal document, you tend to find that at the beginning of the document there is a summary of what the whole document is and if you don't have the time or you don't have the inclination to read the whole document you can read the summary at the top and that's really what the first verse is when you come to chapter 10 it's a whole idea of what this chapter is going to tell us and so the time frame is set for us in the third year of Cyrus king of Persia a thing, and that word thing is repeated in the verse, a thing was revealed unto Daniel. Now, the time frame is this. It's the third year following Cyrus's king of Persia, conquest and victory over Babylon. You're three years in after Daniel 5. And this places it two years after Daniel 9. So you have this gap historically. Daniel is now an old man. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why he reacts so physically um, to what he sees spiritually. And there is a physical impact upon him that's quite severe here. But Cyrus is probably the same man as Darius. It's the same dynastic title, while Cyrus would be his proper name. And so you've got the title of Darius, and then you've got Cyrus. It's the equivalent to the Roman Caesar. And Caesar was a man's name, but became the title for the emperors that followed him. And so you have this idea within the um, Persian Empire, so it says here that in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this thing was revealed unto Daniel. <coughs> His Babylonian name is given. The veracity of it is mentioned there. The thing was true, but the time appointed was long. Now the ESV puts it this way, it was a great conflict. The NIV translates it this way, it concerned a great war. And so what is being revealed here is summarised in this way, 
It was revealed at this time to Daniel, and in case you're worrying or concerned about who Daniel is, we're told to Daniel is, even to the Babylonians, they would recognise him with that name. And all that he is going to have revealed to him concerns a great war, a great conflict, a conflict that endures, a conflict which, by the way, began with the fall of man or even prior to the fall of man and which continues today and will continue until the time of tribulation. So you've got this huge span of conflict that Daniel receives a glimpse of. And this that's revealed to him is going to particularly pertain to Israel, Daniel's people, as so much of what we've read and Daniel does. But it also is going to be, if you like, demonstrated by Daniel's interaction with it. He's going to react in a way that is consistent with what is actually being revealed. So we come to verse 2 and 3 and the narrative unfolds of how this vision is being revealed. And it's very graphic. So it says, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. So again, you've got this period in Daniel's life where he is mourning, and it's for three weeks. Now, Daniel, we've noticed, is a man of prayer. You know, we sing the chorus, Daniel was a man, well, I don't sing it now, but Daniel was a man of prayer daily. He prayed three times. And so in chapter 2, Daniel prays. He's going to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he prays. We know he prays three times a day in chapter 6, and he was thrown into the den of lions as a consequence, we've got his intercessory prayer in chapter 9 and confession representatively on the part of Israel. Now we see him again in chapter 10 in fervent prayer. And he is in that mode of fasting and mourning and praying. He says, I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth. Three weeks. He's committed to this prayer. In those days. Now the reason for him praying, I would suggest, is given by that expression, in those days. You keep that clarified in verse number 4. And in the 4 and 20th day of the first month, as I was by the side of that great river. It's around the time of Passover, unleavened bread. And so you go to the book of Ezra, you discover in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, that is the additional insight as to what was going on in those days. And what was going on was this, that Cyrus had issued a decree allowing the Jews to return home to Jerusalem, and news was coming back that they were getting a very hard time. And so you can see that Daniel would be perplexed by that. He's struggling to understand it. He's trying to rationalise what's going on with the Lord's people. You can imagine when the decree was issued that it would have been a great thing for Daniel. Daniel wasn't going, but there was a remnant that did go. And it looks as if God is now working out his purpose in the life of his people. But the news then that comes back is not good. Things are not going well. And the reports come back. So what does Daniel do? Daniel does what he always did. Daniel does what was consistent with his life rhythm, with the habits of life, with his instincts honed over a lifetime. He gives himself, this time, intensely to prayer. This is not his daily three times, you know, this is not his three times a day prayer life. This is something special. This is something particular. So as an old man, he deprives himself of food. He is, I think, giving himself 
in a way that I've never done, in a very intense way to prayer. And his prayers were heard. We find it out later in the chapter in verse 10. Verse 10 it says, When the angel appeared, he said, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come. Imagine getting told that. Daniel, the day you began to pray, and you've been praying for three weeks, your prayer was heard in heaven, and heaven responded to your prayer by sending an angel, and not just any angel. Most likely Gabriel, one of the most powerful of angels, responds to your prayer, Daniel. Now, he's held up for three weeks, we'll come to that, because he gets sidetracked and blocked, and there's a conflict with uh, satanic demons, we'll get into that in a moment, but he says, it took me three weeks to get here, but now I'm here, imagine that, an angel coming from heaven, and it takes him three weeks to get to Daniel because of a spiritual conflict in the heavens that Daniel wasn't aware of, and Daniel's praying, and already the message has been heard and responded to. And the angel says, as... He was sent, he was sent for two reasons, because Daniel in verse 12 set his heart to understand, number one, and secondly, he humbled himself before God. That was number two. So it was observed and it did matter in heaven how Daniel prayed and why he prayed. And it also mattered his whole demeanour towards the whole issue of prayer. When I was preparing this, it was a bit of a, a challenge, I think. Here he is, and he's got a spiritual issue. He's, I think he's in light of what's going on in his days, in light of the fact that there is something perplexing him, something worrying him, something concerning him, some big spiritual issue involving his people, and he shows Heaven, his intense seriousness about it, he fasts and he prays, and he's noticed. He's noticed. I was reading about some of the um, behaviour of people in the 9th and 10th century with their gods, particularly in the kind of Viking type of uh, Aesir of gods. So they had Or, they had um, Odin and Thor and Loki, and they had all these gods of war, and Freya, and so on. And they considered that these gods were better and bigger. You know, they were the same as people with all the flaws, but they were more powerful, but they were as contrary and capricious as people on earth. And what they did was, in their behaviour on earth, they had to get the attention of their gods, and so what they did was they would do great battle accomplishments to gain the attention of their gods. And they would cry to their gods. Well, actually, you get a bit of that also in the life of Elijah. And you remember up Mount Carmel, they're doing the same thing. They're cutting themselves. They are prancing about. They're doing their utmost to catch the attention of their gods. And we completely dismiss that idea as being ridiculous. Because God, we've got God's full attention all the time. But this indicates that what Daniel was doing was noticed in heaven. It was remarked upon by the angel. It mattered. 
his approach to prayer, his demeanour, his fasting, it all mattered. It was important. I'm not going to say it caught God's attention, but rather this, it was significant in heaven and is given, not as the reason that the angel came, but certainly the angel came with the commentary that what he had been doing was noticed. One writer said this, almost everyone believes that prayer is important, but there is a difference between believing that prayer is important and believing it is essential. Essential means that there are things that will not happen without prayer. And therefore you pray. Now Daniel 10 is going to teach us something about the spiritual realities that are unseen. And prayer is part of that equation. We're going to learn, for example, that angels exist, demons exist. We're going to learn that angels and demons actually engage each other in spiritual conflict. And are doing that today. We're going to learn that certain demons and probably certain angels, it would seem, are given particular responsibility over geographical areas and nations. And we're also learning that our prayers are part of that conflict and part of that equation. And in some genuine measure, affect the outcome of these conflicts. So in verse 5 to 10, you've got Daniel. And Daniel's in a bit of a state. Daniel's praying. Daniel's serious. And in verse 5 and 6, things begin to happen. So first of all, he lifts up his eyes and he is given the sight of a certain man. That certain man, I would judge, is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. Now it just means this, that before the Lord Jesus was incarnate, that is, he took upon himself humanity permanently, God was manifest in flesh and what he took on in incarnation, he will never relinquish. But prior to that incarnation, the Lord Jesus appeared in the form of a man on certain occasions in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord is sometimes the description given to him. And he appeared as a man. And I would judge that's what we have here in verse 5 to 6. It's what we might call a Christophany, an appearance of Christ pre-incarnation, pre-Bethlehem. And it is very similar to the appearance of that John got of the Lord Jesus in Revelation 1. So in Revelation 1, the language is very similar. It says this, being turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment to the foot, girded about the breast with a golden girdle. His head, his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet burned like fine bronze, and as, they burnt, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. That description is very similar to this description. And John is seeing the Lord Jesus in post-resurrection glory, and Daniel is seeing Christ in pre-incarnate glory. And there's a great similarity between them because the glory of Christ is being manifested. And both men described are clothed in white robes, priestly garments. They both have a gold belt, kingly apparel. They both have blazing eyes. They both have bronze skin. They both have roaring voices, all supernatural traits. They are, I would judge, fantastic, wonderful, amazing portraits 
to a man granted in a vision, Daniel and John, of the Lord Jesus himself and all his glory. The one who's our faithful priest. Clothed in linen with that belt of fine gold around his waist in verse 5. The one who's our sovereign. The one who is omniscient with eyes burning like flaming torches. The one who is our saviour with arms and legs like polished bronze. And the one who, when he speaks, it's like the roar of thousands and thousands of people. It's an, a kind of awesome display of the glory of the Lord. Now, when he sees that in verse 7, there is the effect upon him. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. So his companions didn't see it. I think they heard it because it affected them, but he saw it alone. And it affected him quite dramatically. It overwhelmed him, actually, when you read what happens in verse 7 down. And his companions, although they didn't see it, they heard it, and that was enough for them. They were off. They fled. They ran. I don't know what they heard that caused them to, to scare them to death, the idea is. They were absolutely petrified, and off they went. Daniel's left alone. And in verse 8 it says that, Therefore I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, and there remained no more strength in me. He was absolutely undone by the vision that he saw. Now remember, he's an old man. He's wiped out. He's drained of all physical um, energy and strength, is what said, there remained no strength in me. My comeliness, like authorised versions, my comeliness was turned in me into corruption. Now we've got a similar type of expression, which is this. He looked like the picture of life before, and he looks like the picture of death afterwards. He's like death warmed up. And he was full of vitality before. Now he looks as if he's seen a ghost. Except he hasn't seen a ghost. He's seen the Son of Man. He's seen the Lord. And it's had a physical effect upon him. He's wiped out. Well, in verse number 10, he has recovered. So it has this effect on him. And then in verse 10, there's a hand which touches him. Imagine that. You're absolutely wiped out. Um, you have no more words to say. You're um, on your face to the ground, just like Isaiah 6, uh, Isaiah's experience. And he is he's awakened by the touch of a hand. He must have jumped out of his skin. A hand comes and put his hand on his shoulder. Now, I would think this is not the hand from the Lord, but rather the interpreting angel that's speaking to him and coordinating the whole thing in context and the hand initially on his shoulder does for him again no wonder it says this a hand touched me which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hand so the hand touches him down he goes again so you get this impression of weakness of frailty of the contrast between God and man the contrast even between angels and men. And you realise that Daniel is being brought into a sphere where things are just so different. Here's a man of power and influence and authority in the greatest empire in the world, Daniel. And he's lying on the floor, undone, absolutely wiped out. You might say scared to death. And it's because he's seen a glimpse into the eternal realities, the spiritual realities that are there all the time. And he's just such a contrast. 
And well, he's recovered. And the angel sets him on his knees, trembling, mind you, and he says, O Daniel, verse 11, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee and stand upright for. He basically says, listen, Daniel, up you get. I'm going to tell you something and I want you to understand it. And when he had spoken this word, he starts trembling again. Every interaction from this angel or from the Lord just undoes him again. And it demonstrates the absolute contrast and frailty of men standing in the presence of that which is spiritual and eternal. Well, he is a man greatly beloved. He's encouraged. He was in chapter 9. He's encouraged again in that way. And the angel that had been sent three weeks ago finally turns up. Now, Daniel might have said, where have you been? Why did it take three weeks for an angel to come from heaven and arrive down here in Babylon? Well, this is fascinating to me. This is the real insight of the chapter. We're given, think about this, we're actually given an insight into what goes on. Now, this is not some kind of fairy tale. This is not um, something that you can uh, dismiss as being just typical or pictures or or that kind of thing. This is the realities which are unseen all the time. This is why history goes as it does. This is why one empire follows another in direct accordance with the the prophetic word. There are angels at work. This is why there there has been and continues to be so much anti-God and anti-God's redemptive plan actions in the world. It's why Satan has been able to almost extinguish the line of David repeatedly through history. It's why the Jewish nation is subject to such absolute persecution and turmoil as Satan targets it and will target it again. There is angelic, satanic forces and the reason that Satan has never been successful in all of these things, is that there are angels opposing his demons and preserving the line. And he says this, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for three weeks. Who is the prince of the kingdom of Persia? Now I think there's an old film called The Prince of Persia. This is not the same thing. This is something very different. The prince of the kingdom of Persia is, remember this, that Persia's been under, um, rather Daniel's been under Persian rule for three years. And remember that Persia is the dominant empire in the world at this time. There evidently was a demon, an angelic being fallen, an emissary of Satan, who is particularly concerned with what goes on in Persia. And so decisions that are made, things that happen, people that act in a certain way within the the corridors of power within Persia are actually controlled and influenced by Satan for his purpose. So the angel sent to Daniel in response to his prayers is blocked at getting to Daniel by this angelic being, this demon, blocks and there is conflict between them for three weeks. I find it interesting that even the time scales mentioned. 
They're operating within the time scale of history. They're not operating outside time. They're operating inside time. It's measurable. Now this angel, according to chapter 8 and chapter 9, and I think this is probably Gabriel. And Gabriel says this, or the angel uh, says this, that the only reason he was able to get by that angel was because Michael, the archangel, came to help. That's fascinating. There was reinforcements, angelic reinforcements come for this. This is such a major cause. Why is that angel being blocked from getting to Daniel? Because Satan hates divine revelation. Satan hates the prophetic calendar of God being unfolded and explained to men. Why would Satan hate the scriptures of truth being explained and revealed by angels to Daniel? Because it's going to be committed to scripture and those who are willing to study the Bible now know how it ends. Are given this insight into God's dealings in history and the whole of it, the calendar of God is unveiled. And we're going to see as we go into chapter 11, chapter 12, that's really what is being committed to Daniel. Satan doesn't want it. He sends an angel to oppose this angelic messenger reaching Daniel. Michael comes in, overcomes him, and he gets there. It's not really the sort of thing you think about happening. Where? Where's this happening? Within the realm of time. This is not happening a way out in eternity where time is not measuring anything. This is happening within the creative context. And therefore, within time, it's measurable. And so, when you learn where Satan has his seat of power, it's in the heavens. It's in the sky. It's in the realm of time. This is all going on. It's quite... It's a bit scary. It's a bit spooky in that sense to think that up there is a sphere of spiritual conflict that is concerned with what goes on down here. So Michael is sent that Michael, well, Michael is the angel that has a particular relevance to Israel. So in chapter 10, verse 21, at the end of this chapter, he is really described as the prince, and he's described as your prince. The prince, not of Egypt, it's another film, the prince of Israel. He is a particular, just like the, the, the angel that's opposing is the prince of the kingdom of Persia, he is described as your prince. And in Jude 9, he, verse 9, he's called the archangel, which means the first, the chief angel. And in chapter 12 and verse 1 of Daniel, he's described as the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. So Michael has a particular relevance to Israel. This prince of the kingdom of Persia has a particular reference to the main power that will affect Israel on earth at that time. They're going head to head. One writer said, regardless of Israel's political, military and economic weakness and isolation in the world even today, its existence is certain. It's assured because no earthly power can overcome their prince, Michael. Well, throughout all human history, Satan's networks of demons, and that's what they're called in the Bible, have been working away. And when you come to the Gospels, I think it bears this thought that when the Lord Jesus came to earth, Satan marshaled his demonic forces 
in a concentrated assault here upon earth, upon the Lord Jesus. There was, it seemed, a heightened demonic activity when the Lord was here. That the Lord encountered so many demon-possessed people when he was here. And even Satan himself entering the realm and entering into Judas himself to bring about the destruction of God's redemptive purposes. And so he says this, I remained there with the kings of Persia. And so this angel says, Gabriel, he kept his place of dominant influence. So the demon loses. He remains in his place of influence for God in Persia. And so things are going to continue along God's timeline. Now he says this in verse 14. Now, he says, I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. The angels arrived. Three weeks he's here. And clearly his message to Daniel is prophetic. It has to do with the future. It is what the theologians call an eschatological message. And the ESV says it is for days yet to come. For many days. For days that have yet to take place in the future. Now lo and behold what happens to Daniel, verse 15 to 18. Down he goes again. He's overcome and distressed is the way to put it. In fact, he loses the ability to speak. He goes mute, which is not a great thing for a prophet. But nonetheless, he goes mute and he can't even respond to what he's heard. Remember the appearance to Zechariah and the effect upon Zechariah? He was made mute as well. And in verse number 16, the angel assists him, touches his lips. Remember Isaiah 6 with the coal off the altar. Touches his lips to open his mouth to enable him to speak. And Daniel can talk. That's all he can do. He's actually racked with pain when you read these verses. Strength leaves him. He can barely breathe. It says in verse 17, no breath is left in me. And in verse number 17, yeah, he says, For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? For as for me, straightway there remaineth no strength in me, neither is there breath left in me. Dale Ralph Davis, whose books are always worth reading, if you ever come across them, he said this, One might wonder if this helpless, sleeping, shaking, speechless, breathless man will ever be in shape to receive the angel's vision. He hasn't even received the vision yet. And this is the state of. What we then learn at the end of this, before he gets to vision in, verse, in chapter 11, is this. Daniel has had a little taste of spiritual warfare here. Just a taste, just an insight, just a glimpse. His prayers have actually been part of that whole thing. It's brought the angel down. There's been conflict for three weeks as a consequence of Daniel's prayers. Daniel's about to get revealed to him that which Satan doesn't want him to receive. He's part of the equation now. He's involved. And the consequence is this. And what we learn is this. Number one, prayers by the people of God are heard by God immediately. Number two, demonic forces can delay answers to prayer, as happened here. Number three, wrestling in prayer is exhausting work. Now we learn 
in verse 15 to 18, that following times of intense experience with God, God strengthens the individual. We also learn here from verse 18 on that overcoming demonic forces is not a once-for-all thing. They return. And the effect, even upon a man like Daniel, this spiritual giant, was it knocked him off his feet, virtually unconscious, drained him of all strength, left him without breath, and yet greatly loved of God and strengthened and recovered and touched by the heavenly visitor and strengthened. And this is the message that he gets coming out of all of that. Four things. Verse 19, fear not, number one. Number two, peace be with you. Number three, be strong. Number four, be of good courage. Has an echo of the message to Joshua um, when the angel of the Lord, that divine visitor, appeared to him before he's about to go into battle in chapter one and chapter two. And he says this in verse 20. He says, do you know why I've come here? He says, I've come here and now I'm going back to the area of conflict. He's going back to engage again with the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, the prince of Greece shall come. Now here's the historical note. So this angel, Gabriel I think, is going back into conflict with the prince of Persia. And then subsequently the prince of Greece. Now here's the, here's the big historical picture. Now Satan... Through the prince of Persia, he almost succeeds in wiping out Israel in the days of Esther. That's what the whole book of Esther is about. It's the satanic onslaught in Persia to wipe out the line of Christ. The remnant in Jerusalem are under constant attack. Satanic forces continue to attack them. You read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. And that continued, by the way, for 200 years. Until Alexander the Great comes on the scene. Now he comes on the scene at 334 BC and he survives till 323 BC. He's not around for very long. But his empire really is the dominant empire in Palestine until the Roman Empire comes up. And so you get in, in, in BC 63 when Pompey, the general, the Roman general, who was fighting. Um, in Rome and brought his army round. He was the great general. And he laid, he laid siege to Jerusalem in 63 BC, not the AD 71 by Titus, but before that. And they then became, the Romans then became the dominant influence on Jerusalem. Now what is being said here is just this, that this angel is going to be in constant conflict with the satanic influence upon Persia. And when Persia is no longer dominant and Greece is then Satan will send an angelic being to influence Greece against the people of God. And then when that goes, he'll send one to influence Rome against the people of God. So it goes on. And God is sending his angelic messengers into those conflict zones. It's unbelievable. And he says, in the meantime, before I go back into conflict in verse 21, but I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. And there is none that holdeth with me in these things but Michael, your prince. He says, it's me and Michael. It's almost like me and Michael against the crush. It's me and Michael against the satanic forces, which is enough. 
is enough. And so he reveals that what he's going to give in the next section is truth inscribed in the book of truth. What an apt description for God's revelation. Piper said, um, Piper said this, commenting on this section. He said, take the supernatural seriously as a Christian. Realise that we are in a warfare that cannot and should not be domesticated by reinterpreting everything in the biblical worldview so that it fits nicely with secular, naturalistic ways of thinking. So he says, don't take what the Bible says about the supernatural and the unseen and interpret it through world views. Do it the opposite way. See what is happening in the world as a consequence of what's going on in the unseen. So the physical is playing out what's being done in the unseen. The seen is the consequence. The unseen is the source. He goes on and says this, Be ready for the extraordinary, as well as the ordinary ways that God will work. Don't be presumptuous. Demons are not weak, and don't be anxious as though they are stronger than the Lord. They're not. And so you come into the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 6, and this is the New Testament equivalent, if you like, truth. Put on the whole armour of God, Paul says in chapter 6, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles, against the schemes of the devil. So what Paul does in Ephesians is take the, the, the unseen reality that's revealed to us in Daniel and elsewhere and says to the Christians, that's the same conflict that you're involved in. We're not just spectators. We're participants in that conflict. Unknowingly, as Daniel was, we can't see it, but it's real. Paul says this, you're in a war, you're in conflict, you need an armour, it's not physical, it's spiritual, in order to survive the conflict. Still standing. The battlefield is full of Christians on earth who are down, not standing. And the reason they're not standing is that they have been unprepared for the satanic onslaught that came to them. They weren't ready. Satan targeted them. And either sent an arrow of doubt into their mind, or he either presented a picture of temptation before their eyes, or he even caused something to stir the hubris and pride within the flesh. And down they went. And they've stayed down. Because there's a conflict going on. We have an enemy, an, e an enemy with resources. Paul goes on and says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, here they are. Here is the spiritual enemies that we face. Not now the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And I would judge from that that the dominant world powers that affect particularly Israel do have direct satanic influence placed upon them. I don't know if Satan has influence in all of the world and all the kingdoms, I don't know. But certainly in relation to those who are directly 
impacting and influencing God's particular people. You have that here. We do not wrestle like this is the church now. This is us. This is not the prince of the kingdom of Persia. This is us. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Paul's writing to ordinary, everyday Christians in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. He says, but we do wrestle against enemies. We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against, as the ESV puts it, I think, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's a big lineup. That's a big description. Paul is saying Satan has his resources. Satan is able to come right down here and through those that he influences, through those that he indwells, but mostly through those that he influences and structures he sets up and worldviews that he promotes and all the rest of it, he is able to engage us spiritually. It's not all the flesh. That's not really all the problem. The flesh responds to what Satan provides in his worldview and system. So that's a kind of, okay, so what Daniel is saying is also relevant to me. So it is. Let me finish with this though. No Christian should be anxious about demonic activity or even begin to dabble in it or even become um, obsessed by it or living in terror of it. Because a vision of the glorified Lord that Daniel received demonstrates that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. That there is a sufficiency in our God. We know that he wins anyway. But there is a sufficiency in God and in what God provides us in order for us to, as Peter says, to live a life of godliness here upon earth and withstand Satan's temptations and influence. But it's a thought. It's a thought that there is another realm and that is as real as this even though we can't see it. Next time we'll get into chapter 11 to learn all about the king of the north and the king of the south. It's like, it sounds like something out of Game of Thrones, but it's not. And we discover that as far, this is the real thing upon which all these sorts of things are modelled um, in concept. So let's just pray and give thanks for the time spent around these words.